Wednesday. And you can always find us at the Katie Halper Show on WBAI. That's 99.5 FM or WBAI.org. I'm here with Reggie Johnson. Hi, Reggie. Hey, Katie. How's it going? Um, it's Wednesday. It's, it's the middle. Wednesday. It's the hump day. Hump day, middle of the week. That's right. Gabe Pacheco is not here. I should have warned you. Oh yeah, that's right. Luckily, you're sitting down because whenever you're down. working, you're sitting down, which is well, good because well, that's kind of part of the job. It, but I you could understand. have a standing desk or treadmill uh, desk. That would be interesting, right? That would be. So we're sad that Gabe isn't here. Yeah, that's too bad. It's really too bad. I mean, I see Gabe all the time. I feel like you guys have a more special bond. Oh, well. You, you know, do. So you kind I've, of do. So I've been told. Yeah, there is a, a wonderful romance between you guys. Right. So we're really excited because we're going to have a phone call chat with Freddie DeBoer. I don't know if that's how you say it. Freddie DeBoer? DeBoer? DeBois? DeBoer. I, I don't know. It's like a... DeBoer? Well, how's the last name spelled? B-O-E-R. I think it's DeBoer. DeBoer, yeah. Yeah. In fact, this is a big deal because we let people call into the show who have blonde hair and blue eyes or red hair and green eyes, but we don't usually let them into the physical office. And we'll talk to you about why that is soon. But we've been lagging on that policy a little bit just because we feel like it's time to give back, right? Oh, We have this affirmative action policy, basically, based on the fact that Gabe Pacheco once assumed that this very attractive gorilla named Shabani (laughs) had blue eyes, and that just spoke to the power of the myth of the blue-eyed supremacy that we've all been indoctrinated with, because honestly, how indoctrinated with the blue-eyed myth of beauty do you have to be to think that a gorilla has blue eyes? Right. <laughs> so that's when we started. We've had a couple hazel eyed right, guests. Right. Claire Potter was our second guest. She's kind of hazel eyes. Right. But we are so excited to have Mr. DeBoer on the phone lines. Are you there? What's up? What's up? Hey there. Don't sound so animated. Sorry. Hi. It's OK. Hi. No, th- these are serious times. We have a lot of serious stuff to talk about. How do I pronounce your last name, by the way? DeBoer. DeBoer. OK, cool. And do you go by Frederick or Freddie? Freddie's fine. OK, Freddie's fine. Freddie is from Middletown, Connecticut, which is probably the most interesting thing that guests definitely want to hear about. That's all they want to hear about. No, but he's a writer, a prolific writer, and his writing appears in Jacobin and Harper's, and he studies linguistics and teaches linguistics. That's right. How was Middletown for you, by the way? Because I went to Wesleyan, and I just want to apologize for the number of times you probably heard the word problematic. <laughs> uh, Wesley and, you know, Middletown was a pretty awesome place to grow up. You know, Connecticut is like three choices. You're in a super tony, like rich town, like Greenwich or, or Darien, uh-huh. which is known as Aryan Darien to people from Connecticut. Oh, um, God, I like it. There's little rural towns like Durham, like little small towns. And then there's just terribly poor like cities like Bridgeport and Hartford right. and New Haven. Right. Uh, Middletown is one of the only places in the city, in the state that's got like real diversity, racial diversity and economic diversity and stuff like that. And, you know, Wesleyan students are really annoying in some ways, but they're also cool in some ways. And the university brings a lot of cool culture to the town. So Right. And chalking. There's a lot of chalking. A lot of chalking. So that's, uh, Reggie, that is... Um, what's chalking? Chalking is when you write things that are shocking to at least 18 to 22-year-olds, uh-huh. and you just write them in chalk on the pavement. Wow. To protest, that's yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I've so, just learned something. Freddie, I have a question. Did you, Oh, this is Reggie Johnson, by the way. Hello. Hi there, Reggie. Hey. Who's our engineer-in-chief. So I have a question. You write a lot about identity politics, right? That's right. So is Freddie DeBoer a stage name? It is not, although not. that accusation has been made in the past. Oh, really? Okay. I had yeah. to ask. Yeah. 
And how did you get into this issue? Well, that's a good question. I am from a left-wing background and sort of old-school socialist background. was an activist for many years. And as I sort of started to watch the center of gravity of left-wing politics and left-wing discussion move online, I noticed that a lot of things were changing in how we talked about problems like racism and sexism. And I didn't think that they were changing for the better. And that's how I kind of got interested in it. Got it. And what are your thoughts? I was listening to an interview that you did, and you had some really interesting things to say about horizontal organizing and organization and consensus building and consensus as a method. Right. And hold on. Let me just check. I'm making sure there's a consensus that I can go on with this question. (laughs) Everyone's. Okay, you guys. Okay, oh, yeah, we okay. reached consensus, but oh. that's because we're there are only four of us. Okay, but I want to know because you did challenge this horizontal organizing model. What the ideal for you is in terms of government? Sure. So look, I mean, there's no like I don't have like a like a ten point plan in terms of like you know you should five the, year should, plan. I don't have a plan like should the treasurer of your activist group report to the vice president or the undersecretary or whatever, and who should be parliamentarian. I do know that if you want to create actual change, you have to have some, like, you know, it's called organizing, right? Which means that you have to have some organization. Horizontal structures are notorious for not being able to get anything done because the denial of leadership ultimately also becomes the denial of responsibility, right? When you say that nobody's a leader in our group, it means that no one's individually responsible for anything. Right, right. And also, in order for people to really invest themselves in something, even if they're selfless people, even if they're people who genuinely want to change the world, it's really hard to do that when you feel like your efforts are not sort of recognized within the structure. And I think that it's just a false choice. The choice is not like either with the military, right, with like strict hierarchies everywhere and everybody saluting to each other. Or a drum circle. Or a drum circle, right? And so I think that the organizational structure itself is something that should evolve. And obviously, you should be careful about people becoming too powerful in the organization or unaccountable to their members. And there should be sort of things baked into your system that allow you to make change when change in leadership is necessary. Right. But uh, if you want to actually make, be a force for change in the world, you have to recognize that establishment power is organized, right? Right. Like the cops were organized and the corporations were organized and they know that organization is the power. So you better organize too. Right. Yeah, that's something that the left sometimes forgets in its anti-authoritarianness, right? That there actually is a lot of discipline required mm-hmm. and it's kind of self-indulgent not to have discipline. Right. Well, it's also, you know, a lot of people come to left-wing politics and, and I don't blame them for this. I mean, it's not their fault, but the left has a lot of converts, right? Like, yes. it's got a lot of people who kind of grew up in kind of churchy homes in the Midwest for whom, and these people are super passionate, and that's great. But a lot of times they don't come from a background where, like, organizing is something real. Like, they read about it, and they read about it online, and they're into it, and they like the idea. But it's really, it's oftentimes people kind of have this difficulty kind of making the transition into, like, actually doing something. Right. It's good that there's a coolness factor to it, but then you have to right. get over that and actually engage. Right. So one of the things... Horizontal activism does is it like it enables people to sort of continue with their kind of fantasy idea about what organizing is, but it's very unglamorous and it's very slow and it's kind of annoying to actually do actual activism, you know. And you talk about fascism and Donald Trump and the representation of Trump as a fascist. I agree. I think that Trump is very theatrical, right? And I think he has a fascistic flair to him, but I'm always surprised that people aren't more afraid of. Ted Cruz. Mm. What do you think of that comparison in terms of the scarier of the two? Right. So I want to be careful. I mean, obviously, fascism is always something to fear, right? Um, Mm, Yes and no. I mean, one of the things is, 
It's like uh, part of what makes change difficult in the modern world is that we have all of these pretenses of what we do and we don't do, right? So if you look at like colonialism, right? For centuries, we had explicit colonialism and imperialism, right? Like you had, like it was just a, a thing that a country would do is to go and invade another country and steal its resources. It's good that that doesn't really happen anymore. However, we've replaced it with kind of like neo-colonialism, right? So right. all kinds of trade deals and um, exploitative partnerships. So right now, China, which is a really like a, a rising kind of neo-imperialist power, has struck this crazy deal in Jamaica where they are building a road for Jamaica. They're building like a highway. So they're providing the funds for it. But they own all the land that is on the, either side of the highway. Um, and so they are actually going to like take like physical control uh, physical ownership of like a big swath of Jamaica. Mm. Um, that is the sort of thing that it's not as ugly and obvious to see as sort of like, you know, just going and invading Jamaica. Right. So right. we've created this sort of veneer of sort of modern civilization when there's still so much exploitation right. going on. And a respect for human rights, right? And, and right. civil rights. Right. And so, yeah. but Trump, like just to, to, to say that the Trump and the Cruz question, right? Like right. Trump, Part of what makes people elites hate Trump is that he has kind of pulled the blind off, right? right? He's kind of pulled off the veil. He's just saying what is underneath the surface. He's a monster, but he's an honest monster. He makes it clear that Republicans hate immigrants and Hispanic people and Muslims. He is just saying what the other Republicans have been saying in code for years. Or with the abortion issue, right? That was what struck me when he, the other day with Chris Matthews, who I find Endlessly entertaining, by the way. I kind of do love Chris Matthews. But he asked him about what he would do with women who had abortions. And Donald Trump was kind of like, oh, yeah, there'd be a punishment. I'd punish them. And everyone flipped out. Right. And they ignored two things. One is that the logical implication of considering abortion murder is that it's criminalized and it's punishable. Right. And it should be. I mean, they're wrong about abortion. But following their theory, that's the logical outcome and conclusion. The other thing is women are already being punished for that. But I thought that was a great example of how he, as you said, he just exposed the really ugly face that's behind this kind of not even attractive. I mean, Ted Cruz, not to be what's the word, lookist or something, but Ted Cruz Mm. is not a very attractive dude. But on a policy level, there's a more attractive face, right? Did you used to ever watch Gummy Bears, like the Disney show Gummy Bears? No, I didn't even know Ah. everything. I thought they were just a food. (laughs) Ted Cruz looks like the little midget, uh, excuse me, the little person uh, ogre named uh, named Toad Wart on that show. If you Google it, okay, just Google Toad Wart and then look, Toad compare Wart. a picture like to Ted Cruz. Already. Yeah, he looks uh, like if Marco Rubio like head was stuck right. between closing elevator doors. Yeah, it's like figured out. Yeah, really much. Yeah, yeah, very elong, not, All, not elongated, but yeah, look kind of distorted. Distorted. He looks like Dobby from Harry Potter. Uh, do you, <laughs> there's consensus in the room for people who have seen it more than I have. I think I saw one of them. I'm not this ignorant on a pop culture level, but the gummy bears, the Harry Potters, and the Star Wars. The gummy Wars bears Star is Trek. new for me. I didn't realize about yeah, the gummy bears. Right? Right. That, I, I thought it was just a candy I as think well. the thing about... I'm old. Bro. What? No. That's because I'm old. Yeah, right. You're younger than both of, both of us, I think. But the thing about Cruz that's so attractive, besides what he says and does, and his terrible Spanish, is that he uh, <laughs> he's so, like oozing with sexuality that he literally spits chunks of things out which land on his lip and then are re-digested. Did you guys see that during the debate? I know Mm -hmm. I'm being so petty right now. He's a very scary, hawkish man and much more fascistic in content, right? Well, you see how his 
daughter reacted to him in in those uh, pictures. Oh my uh, those gosh, videos. those videos, the campaign right. videos. That was amazing. The cruise control thing that the Daily Show did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was really great. And I saw a meme that was saying that, Daddy, I rebuke you from your evil. Oh my God. Yeah. So it was. A, it, they took a screenshot of it and it made it into a meme. Wow. Well, the thing is, I mean, the reason it's a fear cruise, right, is precisely that, I mean, his policies are not that different from Donald Trump. Right. And yet he has the backing of the Republican establishment, right? right? So, and like, he's a smart, he's an intellectual. Right. Even though he's anti-intellectual yeah, yeah. in his presentation, but he is. He's a lawyer. He went to, do you know that he went to, he went to Harvard Law and do you know what play he was in? Not making this up. What Arthur Miller play he was in? Death of the Salesman. The Crucible. Ah, okay. Isn't yeah. that amazing? Did he play the witch? No, yeah, he played a bad guy. He played yeah. one of the, no, not a witch, but he played a bad guy, as in bad to Arthur Miller, probably good to Ted Cruz, mm. in that he was in no persecutor of, uh, of alleged witches slash very uh, anti-communist, to take right. the allegory there. I mean, the thing is, is I don't. I mean, I don't think that Ted Cruz is going to become president because, again, um, he looks like a creature from a cantina scene in Star Wars. Right. But I do think that, like, he and represents. No one likes him. Everyone hates him, apparently. Right. Everybody hates him. Um, he's like that kid in your high school class where, like, he got bullied, but like you couldn't feel that bad about it because he deserved it. You know. Right. Um, I, but the thing is, is right. He speaks for a political tendency that still has a constituency in this country. And it's also a political tendency that, by the way, is dominating the state house races. You know that Democrats, since the beginning of the Obama administration, have lost over 900 state legislature mm. seats across the country. Wow. And so one of the things that's happening is, you know, Democrats only seem to really pay attention for the presidential elections. Right. But every year, the Republicans are tightening their grip on the state houses. And then what that does is when you have the state house, right, you control districting, which means that you can gerrymander and you can win the house. And so we're getting, you know, Democrats are getting killed on the ground game. Oh, and I think I heard a we, a little de- identification with the Democratic Party. And so we're getting, you know, Democrats are getting killed on the ground game. Oh, and I think I heard a we, a little de- identification with the Democratic Party. We can Maybe we can, a little bit. We can cut this out. We'll bleep this out. Of yeah, bleep, the, bleep that, please. Yeah, yeah. the podcast, yeah. But uh, yeah, but you know, it's like, and that's a presidential politics or glamorous politics. Local and state elections are not sexy. And one of the problems I think is that the Democrats have trouble, real trouble, motivating their base for anything other than a than a presidential election right now. And Bernie, any any uh, thoughts on Bernie? I know that you 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 seem to what I, from what I've read of you and and heard of you, you have a little bit of an ambivalence towards him. But he's the best it gets, right? As of now. Yeah. So look, like I, you know, Bernie is not my ideal candidate. My ideal candidate doesn't exist. Right. Right. Like who is um, your ideal candidate? Let's say, let's say you could uh, like appoint a philosopher King. Mm. You don't have to be either one professionally, but if you could appoint the ideal person who's, it could be a hybrid. It could be a Katie Halper meets Reggie Johnson. For instance, we've, okay. lots of people have suggested us um, as the ideal. That would be awesome. Yeah. Right. I, we, if yeah. we ran the country as running mates, um, who who is it? Who is the person? Like Emma Goldman? I don't know. Uh, Howard Zinn. Hmm. That is a good question. Um, I, my, you can come back if you need some time to think about that. Well, no, um, whatever that amalgamation of that candidate will be, will definitely will not have such a negative reaction that Ted Cruz is having in the Bronx right now. Oh, 
Well, nice segue. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I have I have well, yeah. I have no, skills. That was good. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Freddie. We uh we had to do no. that, that Bronxian segue because no, Reggie is from the Bronx right. and my mom is I'm half Bronxian, so we right. had to honor that. Sorry. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, uh, no, I don't know. Um, Bernie is not is not my ideal candidate, but um, and I mean, look, he's not really a socialist in the sense that he probably he is behind closed doors. Let's be honest. I mean, yeah. I mean, his 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 platform is not a an openly socialist right. platform in the sense that. He's not calling for public ownership of like productive apparatus, society, right. right? But ideologically, he's easily the best candidate we've had since uh, Jesse Jackson in '84, whose platform was more to the left than Jesse yeah, Jackson in '88. Right. Um, and he's motivating a lot of people. And you know, the way that the media and a lot of people are, are attacking him makes me like him more. Totally. That's like when I love started loving Obama when they went after him for the Jeremiah Wright stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Thank you remember, you. people don't remember this in 2008, Hillary refused to drop out of the, of the primary, oh. even after she had been like mathematically eliminated. And somebody asked her about it. And her quote was, we all remember uh, we literally talked we about this. That last this is week. hysterical. We, we, played, that last we week. did a mashup of the Hiller, of the Clintonian tone. We did a Clinton tone mashup. And yeah, was, we played her referencing, they said to her, as you were saying, what about party unity? Why don't you drop out, basically, the same way that Joel Benenson called on Bernie Sanders to drop out. And also, Joel Benenson said that Bernie Sanders was going to run like a Brooklynite and Clinton was going to run like a senator. And then he tried to get away with that by saying, I'm from Queens. Of course, I love Brooklyn. We all know that's not true. Major rivalry there. So shame on you, Joel Benenson. It's been one week. I'm going to do the Keith Oberman thing with George Bush. It's been one week since we asked Joel Benenson to apologize. And he still hasn't for that Brooklyn phobic commentary. But we play the thing. Yeah, where, where Hillary says, uh, we're not, I'm not going to drop. They said, why don't we drop out? She goes. Well, you know, my husband didn't get the nomination until, and she fakes as if she's pretending she doesn't right. remember the month, until, what was it, uh, June, June in California. And we all remember what happened in June. June was when Bobby Kennedy was yeah, killed in yeah, California. Yeah, 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 That was wonderful. Is that what you were referring to? Or was it another assassination it's attempt that she tried to leverage against Obama and fear monger? It's like, I mean, it's number one. It's like, okay, like literally like, hey, my opponent could get assassinated. Right. That's not saying I want it to happen. No, but I also, would hate for it to happen, but he's black and the secret service well, yeah, alert you know. is higher than ever. So it right. really could. And we should just cover our bases and vote in for the, me. In the country of James Earl Ray and, right. uh, you know, it, it doesn't seem to me to be a very smart or fair thing to say. So right. she just, she can't lecture anybody about Tom. No. And uh, then speaking of Jesse Jackson, Bill Clinton, when he was asked about Obama winning in South Carolina, he made the very... Right. Just like Hillary went to RFK, because that's the way their brains work. They're just these geniuses we can't even begin to understand. Bill Clinton says, yeah, well, Jesse Jackson won South Carolina, too, and he ran a good campaign. Yeah. The, which no Amazingly one remembers. Flippant. And then he was asked about that on radio. They asked him about it, and he said he didn't make a mistake when he said that because they're playing the race card on me. And then mm -hmm. he was asked about his comment about the race card, and he said, no, I didn't say that. Go back to the interview. And then, of course, you go back to the interview, and he's asked about that, and he says, no, they played the race card on me. Anyway. Right. But, Freddie, where can people find you online? So, my website is frederickdeboer.com. It's F-R-E-D-R-I-K-D-E-B-O-E-R.com. Or you can just Google Freddie DeBoer. I also have a column for the New York Observer at observer.com, and I'm all over the place, so you can find me pretty easy. He's a mess, guys. All over the place. No, just kidding. All over the place. Prolific online, all over, and on the Twitters. In fact, there's a very funny thing that happened when I was looking at your Twitter feed. 
you retweeted this, so you know this, but you mentioned something, uh, you mentioned Chris Hayes, and then the Twitter advertisement that appeared below that tweet was literally something about Penn Gillette's libertarianism. Yeah. So... Thank like you. I love, I love how people get political. Like after you know the thing that they should be famous for stops being important. Right. You know, it's like well, I, I guess I, I'm just this you know this magician. I guess I'll become a, a political libertarian now. Right. Have I a mean, career doing this. It makes sense in a way because libertarianism requires like belief in magic. Yes, yes, so, it does. So, hey, oh, yeah. hey, hey, that was pretty Count good, it. right? Well, yeah. Freddie, we would love to have you back on. Come on into the studio when you're in New York. We'll do a live show. We'll get you and Penn Jillette debating libertarianism. Word. He may make you disappear. Uh, I'll, I'll, pull it, I'll pull him out of a head. Nice. Perfect. All, over. all right. Thanks a lot. I'll be in touch. Great. Bye. Bye. That was Freddie DeBoer, who I think whose real name is probably like Barney Goldstein. Right? But wow. Speaking of, really? Yeah, Barney I'm Goldstein? Go there, That's yeah. pretty generic. For New York City. Well, that's yeah, how, like, absolutely. Well, that's all I'm talking about. Right, that's all that matters, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, we are so excited to bring on our next two guests who are live in studio. They sat so patiently, chomping at the bits, or the bit. I don't even know what that, that's like a, what is it? Champing. Champing? Champing. You know why I said chomping? Because I watched the movie Waiting for Guffman. It's my favorite movie ever. And he says chomping at the bit. So I thought it was, anyway. Well, I'm champing at the bit to have with me here, Leslie Lee. A writer and teacher. A uh, former teacher. Former teacher. Me too. I'm a former teacher, but it's part of our identity. It's like being an alcoholic. We never really stop. <laughs> That's true. Who is fresh off the plane from, we flew him in from Japan just yes, to have him on yes, the show. I flew in yesterday. Kay Halper show is very big in Japan. Of exactly. Course. <laughs> and everybody in Tokyo was very excited that I was going to be on. Yeah. So they put their resources together. And flew you out here, right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, you've moved back to the D.C. area? And all, yeah, I mean, but that was just, you know, coincident. a side. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Since you were going to come on the show anyway, you figured, why not make a life change? Yeah, right. Of course. Exactly. I mean, I, with this interview now, I, I don't have a job at this point. I quit my well, job. Well, now you do. Oh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, I'm on this show now. I, I'm sure my Twitter is going to be blowing up. It is. And the, and the phone calls are going to be coming in for me. Like, I'm really excited. It's Yeah, I'm excited for you, too. You're going to get the Katie for show bump. Yeah. And Jacob Bridge, so great to meet you. Yeah, good to meet you too. And you are a an organizer. People say activist, but I mm -hmm. something that Al Giordano we'll for listening. Yeah, he and I don't agree on lots of things, Al and <laughs> yeah. I. But one thing we do agree on that I got from him, it's his thing, is the difference between activist and organizer, which I was kind of talking about with Freddie, which is kind of activist. It's like about your identity and right. you know the drum circle, embracing that. Right. And I say that as someone who went to Wesleyan again. Yeah, so that's fine. <laughs> like I'm Hillary Clinton too, right? No, she went to Wellesley. Oh, wow. Mine is like the PCU. Hers mm. is the preppy all women's. I see. But, you know, I loved Ani DeFranco. Mm -hmm. I love Dar Williams still. <laughs> I had mm -hmm. her on the show. So no shots fired at the drum circles. Although I don't like them personally, right. but those types too of loud. people. Yeah, they're too loud. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on Dave Matthews Band? You know what? I have to admit, there's some songs of theirs that I absolutely hate. <laughs> and there's some songs that I really like, including Crash, which is basically the perviest song ever about a peeping Tom. Mm, it is. Uh, yeah. That's right imploring a woman he's staring at to hike up her skirt a little more and show her world to me. I mean, yeah, it's so wow. poetic, you almost forget. Mm. It's so original, you almost forget that he's a misogynist uh, and yeah. a sex offender. But um, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, we got off on the organizer-activist right, dichotomy, right, right. but yeah. you're a veteran, yes, I am. a conscientious objector. I am that. And an LGBT organizer. Yeah, I like organizer, yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. And you guys are here tonight because... Each of you would make an amazing guest just on your own for the full hour, right? But we're super excited because even more exciting than that is mm. that 
you guys are doing this show now. And at 8 p.m., you're doing the Katie Halper show live, the live taping. Guys, are you listening to this tonight? 8 p.m., the Brooklyn Commons. That's 388 Atlantic Avenue. Again, the Brooklyn Commons at 388 Atlantic Avenue. We will be talking to Jacob Bridge. We'll be talking to Leslie Lee, the third. Yes. And we'll be talking to Eric Andiola, who is Bernie Sanders' National Latina Press Secretary. So it's going to be a great show. And the theme is, and we'll get to what this means in a second, but the theme is hashtag Bernie made me white. And we're going to be challenging the notion of the Bernie bro that the media is kind of obsessed with. Yep. So I just wanted to ask you guys how you kind of identify, how you identify vis-a-vis Bernie Sanders and how you relate to the Bernie bro image and how much it applies to you or does not apply to you. Well, before this election, I thought I was a black man. Right. Um, Growing up in Louisiana, I was reminded of this fact very often. Right. Um, Especially with my experience, um, I was in the Gifted and Talented program. And of course, in Louisiana, black kids usually don't get uh, pushed into those programs. So I was always, you know, of one or two black kids in class. And most of my friends are white who had Republican parents. Um, they watched the Rush Limbaugh show from fourth grade on. So wow. did they think you were a magical Negro? Yes, a- absolutely. I, they would use the N word in front of me and oh. say, "Oh, we don't mean you." Right. Yeah, right. you're you're not one of those people. Wow. So, and that's a, I think that's a good perspective on racism because it explains, uh, it helps me understand that it's not about the race. At if you get close to a person, you know, you're not going to look at them in the way. Right. And I think progressives kind of lose sight of that. And they always think racists or sexists or homophobes are just these monsters who are, you know, irredeemable. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. But um, and there's a lot of classism that goes along with that, too, because mm -hmm. uh, not to kind of, you know, make it seem like a luxury to be woke. Right. If you will. (laughs) Yeah. But it's. You know, the more access and more opportunity and more exposure you have to different things, the easier it is to not be susceptible to racist, sexist, homophobic propaganda. Right. right? That's coming from Rush Limbaugh. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. If you're if you're a white person growing up in Louisiana, you're not going to be exposed to a lot of progressive thought. If you're a black person growing up in Louisiana, you're not going to be exposed to a lot of progressive thought, which brings us to the Bernie bro. Right. Myth. So. The whole thing about Bernie Bros is basically a way to shut down support of Bernie Sanders yep. by painting us all as the worst thing in the world right now, which is a white young white male who's straight. on the internet, straight, cis, right. um, middle class, um, maybe living in his parents' basement, probably. Uh, was okay with the original prequel trilogy to Star Wars, oh, doobies uh, too, smoking doobies. Yeah. Yes, um, yeah. Well, those were real feral and, movies. And, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. And is kind listening of, to a lot of N.W.A. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And sure. fetishizing black yeah. people. Oh, yeah. And, of course. Um, Dressing like them as well. <laughs> and loving their music um, because it's so awesome. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. And, and harassing women online. Right. Yeah. And not yeah. getting it and being insensitive. So that's right. that's constantly the label that's thrown at Bernie Sanders supporters is that they're Bernie bros. Right. Which is like shorthand for super privileged. Right. Yes. Right. And what happened was, as and we talked about this last week, but was when Bernie Sanders won uh, Alaska, Washington, Hawaii, CNN presented it as a yet another white state victory. Of course, Bernie right. Sanders won that. Yeah. And so is that how where, you... Yeah, that's where the hashtag came in. Like, I wasn't original with this. A lot of people said, you know, when Bernie Sanders wins Hawaii, it's suddenly going to become a white state, according right. to the media. <laughs> right. And we were kind of joking, right. but 
immediately it did become a white state to yes. the media. CNN reported it as mostly rural, mostly white victories, but all those three of those states are three of the most diverse in the country. So seeing that ridiculousness, I was talking to uh, Benjamin Dixon of the Benjamin Dixon oh, yeah. Show, a great guy, and a couple other people. I'm sorry, I forgot his name. Uh, we'll but, put it back in. Yeah. We'll it. <laughs> so um, I made the hashtag, you know, Bernie made me white since the media keeps turning us in white. And yeah. Then I, you know, we started cracking jokes about your people. Sorry. I mean, <laughs> I am white. I'm, I, I, I am white. There's no doubt about it. I have a little, I have a tiny a fl- a cur- undercurrent of Jew, <laughs> which doesn't totally mitigate it, but it's there. Right. But for all intents and purposes, I walk down the street, I'm seen as white. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm seen as Latino, which mm. really excites me. I can see me. that. Yeah, I can, can see that. It, right? mm. But Jacob, tell us about your involvement or your kind of relationship with the Bernie Sanders the Bernie bro and his, and the candidate. Right. Well, unfortunately, I am the Bernie bro on the surface. I'm straight, white, cis, male, young. I fashion myself a feminist, so I am the Bernie bro that they talk about on the surface. But I know that what attracted me to Bernie Sanders as an LGBT organizer was his staunch advocacy for LGBT rights since before I was even born and before it was cool and before it was politically expedient. He did it because he saw them as people. And for the same reasons. Crazy town. Right. And which is weird, right? Like, how dare you as a politician treat people like people? Right. Um, way, as you said, way before it was considered cool to right. do that. He's someone who, was it a congressman or a senator who actually referred to homos? Homos in the military. It's one of my favorite rants to watch about Bernie Sanders because there's this, you know, Southern stereotypical senator who grabs the mic and says, the same people that would do X, Y, and Z are the ones that would allow homos in the military. And he jumps and grabs the mic and says, I don't know if you know what you've done, but you've just insulted hundreds of thousands of American service members who served in all of the engagements, World War One, Two, Vietnam, Korea. I mean, gay service members have been around since forever. Right. Whether or not they could serve openly without right. fear of retribution is a different story. Right. But they were there. They were probably there on Iwo Jima. They were probably there on Definitely, D-Day. Yeah. They may not have been able to be open about it. And it's just impressive to me because, you know, as a straight person, it took me some time to come around to that point of view. And I just can't believe that they let him stay in politics as long as he's been in. Um, he's got some pretty progressive and humanistic views. Those people are generally kicked out of politics. Right. But here he still is. I was also drawn to his conscientious objector application during Vietnam. He applied for it. It got denied, but he applied for it. I was shocked because I'm a conscientious objector and that's how I got out of the military. And with the stigma that you hear about it, I just couldn't believe that this guy was in politics still. And I almost want to know, like, do the Republicans know? Right. Like, do does everybody know that he tried to get out of the military service? Like, wow. Well, I was, this is a little unrelated, but I was amazed that when the, the bird landed on his podium, right? Right. Which, I mean, I know this is not a policy issue, but it was kind of moving because it looked like he was about to cry. Right. And then he turned it, you know, he <laughs> said it was a dove mm-hmm. for peace. It wasn't a dove. But what's interesting, and I'm, I shouldn't even say this on radio, but luckily I think Republicans don't listen to WBAI. There's although one. some Hillary people may. <gasps> But no one made this connection. When Fidel Castro entered Havana Mm. and proclaimed victory, he gave a speech in this famous plaza and a dove landed on him. And so I'm waiting for the right and the Hillary box. (laughs) Well, quiet, right? No, I I said it. I can't help it. I have to speak (laughs) to to inefficient, to power slash really bad PR that Hillary Clinton has. Mm -hmm. That's just a, this is my favorite meme right now. It's not a meme. It's a trend, I guess. The idea that because Hillary Clinton has lied so many times and Ugh. pause, I know that makes me a right wing misogynist, right? Right. Because yes. clearly so reporting is very sexy. You're a Bernie bro. You I'm a Bernie women. bro. You I am. I want women. to start identifying right. as I want to reclaim that that word. But when she 
said, where is my where is my uh, opponent when I was fighting for health care? And then it turns out he right was behind literally you. behind her. Right. So what does the press her PR person do after that is said? Says, yeah, exactly. That only proves our point. She was always ahead of him. Oh, I know. God forbid if we find I'm a photo spinning of from her, the spin. I know. Right. Amazing. It's nauseating. Yeah. Dizzying. If we find a photo of her standing in front of him, then what happens? Does that change history like Back to the Future? I think so. I, I think history changes every time Hillary Clinton opens her mouth. True. Basically. Another great hashtag. I history mean, by Hillary. That's <laughs> why I made up uh, Bernie made me white because every time the media talks about me, I look down and I start becoming invisible like Marty McFly in that movie. Yeah. I mean, because I don't exist. And right. what's insidious about it is it's not about Bernie or Hillary necessarily. It's about basically trying to separate black causes and interests from progressive causes, which has been effective, basically. It's very effective. Why are black people in the South, especially so supportive of Democrats, often blue dog Democrats, conservative Democrats? Um, Like in Louisiana, we had Mary Landrieu, who tried to save her seat by pushing through legislation to approve the Keystone XL pipeline. So that's where she was coming from as a Democrat. And so by trying separating black activists and causes from progressive activists and causes, socialists, you know, unions. And of course, there's a history of racism in progressive politics, of course, which but, you know, the centrists, the conservatives want to keep that separate, too. And the media seems happy to go along with it as well and just push blackness as an issue unto itself and separate from class issues, which economic is so issues. not intersectional, which is ironic because right. a lot of the people who are so pro-Hillary are the ones who kind of have the, you know, hold up the the label of intersectionality and intersectional feminism or whatever, right? right. <laughs> and accuse people who are Bernie supporters of being privileged, right? And as if kind of the problematic position, I said it, <laughs> problematic position is to support Bernie Sanders and the non-problematic one is to support Hillary. And they actually point to, I mean, I've had people say this to me, they just try to shut me up and this is not like a white self-pity thing, but they'll say, you know, like, oh, well, I guess you don't, I guess black people are just wrong, huh? As if there's this monolith of the blacks, <laughs> yeah. right? Like as a, yeah. our favorite Donald yeah, Trump refers to them. The he says, I've always had a great relationship with the blacks, <laughs> which is, you know, you do have a great relationship with them when okay. you call them the blacks. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this idea that it's like this, oh, black folks are pragmatists. We're pragmatists or they're pragmatists, depending on who's talking. Right. And it's this way of kind of like presenting Bernie supporters as these fringe kind of like what Freddie and I were talking about before, about these kind of newbies to activism who are fetishized. And that does happen. It's annoying. But the idea is somehow that you're privileged because you are attracted to a candidate whose policies are much more helpful and empowering to people who are not privileged. Yeah, it's very hard to wrap my head around it because like they're using these languages of Internet intersectionality, like to hear Hillary Clinton use the word intersectionality. That's absurd. If that doesn't strike you as ridiculous, there's something wrong with you and your moral compass. She's a millionaire. She's one of the most powerful human beings to ever walk the face of this earth. Mm. She's at least in the top 500 of the most powerful human beings on earth. She does not understand intersectionality and she never will and she never will be able to. Right. I mean, because I think that she, in theory, she could, right? It's not, in other words, it's her privilege per se doesn't totally bar her from that. But I think a lot of her policies do. So we talked with Premila Nadison about this a couple of weeks ago. And we talked to Bob Shear about this last week about the way 
that the Clintons totally dismantled welfare and yep. bragged about it. And that affects poor people. It affects people of color. But then that's a whole other thing, which is that people assume that all people on welfare are black. And that's right. because of certain linguistic language things like right. super, pre- you know, that the Clintons use exactly, regularly like the super predators, right? This coded language. Like that- the, it's just that the Clinton, if you look at the rise of the Clintons, they built their power, at least on a national scale. I haven't looked too much into how they built it in, in Arkansas. Arkansas yeah. <clears throat> but on a national scale, they built it straight off of racism. I don't even want to call it execution. It's, it was a lynching of the mentally disabled black man. When in, in Arkansas. Arkansas, when well, he yeah. was governor. Yeah. Yeah. Rick, Rick, down there. Yeah. 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 Ricky Ray Rector. Right. It was a lynching. He was mentally disabled at right. the time they executed him. Yeah, he wasn't just to be... I, I totally agree with you. People will come at me when I say that and they're like, well, he wasn't retarded when he did the crime, which is not actually relevant because right. uh, mm-hmm. legally speaking, you're not. There's actually a Supreme Court case about this called right. the Panetti case. And you're not Panetta. You're actually not. You have to be rationally aware of mm-hmm. what's happening right. when yeah. you're executed. But not, yeah. even, not even executed on trial. He was mentally disabled oh, while right, he was on he trial. Committed, what was it that he was injured while he was committing the crime? Is uh, that what? Um, immediately after he um, shot the police officer, he shot himself. Got it. Okay. Yes. So yeah, he could, and he was deemed competent. Somehow, yes. And the most insidious part about this is Bill Clinton knew exactly what he was doing. This started when Michael Dukakis mm. was asked yeah. about the death penalty. And at, if it was his wife, right? Yeah. Who had been killed, if he would support it. Yeah, and absolutely. And he, Michael Dukakis answered the question with his you know, general answer about a policy level issue. But right. what he didn't understand is that is, that question was not about policy. That question was about would you as a white man, if a black man went to right. your home and raped and killed your wife, would you kill him? And he didn't answer it like that. But that was the subject. They wanted him to say yes, of course. Yes. And Bill Clinton called Michael Dukakis' press secretary the night of that debate at 2 a.m. saying, you know, what the hell happened? What did he do? And Bill Clinton remembered that when he ran right. for it. He had it in his mind when he went to kill that man. So that's, And it's just yeah. that much more ironic. Yeah. I don't care what a politician does in their private life as long as it's consensual. I do care when it's a socially conservative person. And of course, Clinton, I think, outlawed sodomy in Arkansas. Did he? Yeah. yeah. And that's what he did with, you know, the woman with whom he did not have sexual relations. Yeah. So progressive. So progressive, right? And they're lawyers. They're really smart. That's the thing. The Clintons are super smart. They yeah. understand all the implications of what they're doing. I almost feel like they're not even that. B- I can't explain. It. I actually feel bad for them. I think they're pathological. I think they're so obsessed with power. And I think their politics are actually better than the ones that they present. Yeah. But yeah, it's cra- It's really, I was going to say insane or crazy, but that's yeah. kind of yeah. weird because we're talking about mental illness. They have, to, they have to be pathological because we tend to think of Bill Clinton's affairs all coming out around the same time. But that's not what happened. Nope. His he was accused by Jennifer Flowers right. during the primary. Primary, so think about that. He survived that, but as soon as he got in the White House, he started a relationship. Right. Yeah, with you would intern. think that that would have been a, an alarm, right? Yeah, like to maybe keep yourself out of that. Right, those tendencies. But sodomy's a sin. Sodomy's a sin. Yeah, <laughs> love this. What is it though? Love the sinner, not the sin. Oh right, yeah. Or as James Adomian, a really funny comedian who does is doing the Trump Bernie. Uh, duo comedic duo says oh, when nice. he did um, his Bush impersonation, which is amazing, he'd say, "Love the sin, love the love the sin, hate the sinner." <laughs> but uh, we do, we do, right? <laughs> so we are we are so excited. It's we're about to be done with this episode with this show, the Katie Halber Show. But we're so excited, and we really want to invite all of you to come down to the Brooklyn Commons tonight. You have two hours to get here. Ready? Two hours, three eighty eight Atlantic Avenue. 
between Hoyt and Bomb. One hour. one hour. Sorry, thank you. I was <laughs> testing you. Hour, yeah. When I said, ignore that, guys. Take that out of your out of your head. That was a weird. Eight o'clock. That 8 was p.m. me. It's eight p.m. Right. That was me wanting to give myself more time to to stretch. <laughs> right. Get ready. No, no, no. Eight eight p.m. and it's seven yeah. now. You see, I'm not a numbers person. I'm much more of a humanities person. Anyway, <laughs> you have one hour to get here. One hour to get here. Come on down, 380 Atlantic Avenue. The first 10 people who get here get free tote bags, Bernie tote bags. There'll be drink specials. The whole thing is free. You'll meet these great people. We're going to read some of the best um, Bernie made me white hashtag examples. <laughs> Your first one was what? Um, I'm Bernie made me white, so I'm binge watching Friends. Great. Very good one. That's a great one. A Another one. one I read was like Bernie made me white. And so I take my salsa miles now, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that was someone Latino. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we will see you next week. Make sure you sign up, uh, follow us on SoundCloud, subscribe on iTunes, give us a rating or review. And where can we find you guys online? Um, I'm at Tokyo Vampires. Tokyo uh, Vampires. I'm at I'm a bridge with two underscores in there. Uh, there you go. And uh, we'll link to them and we will see you next week or we'll see you at 8 p.m. here at the Brooklyn Commons.